spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 192. On today's show, we talk to authors Nan Rothschild and Arthur Bankoff about the new book, Buried Beneath the City, an archaeological history of New York. Let's dig a little deeper, but I think they probably dug deep enough because they've got millions and millions of artifacts. (laughs) Before we start the podcast, I wanted to give just the little bit of explanation about the book that we're about to talk about, Buried Beneath the City, an Archaeological History of New York. It was published by Columbia University of Press, September 2022. And here's just the first paragraph from the description of the book, so you can have a little bit of an idea. Bits and pieces of the lives led long before the age of skyscrapers are scattered throughout New York City, found in backyards, construction sites, street beds, and parks. Indigenous tools used thousands of years ago, wine jugs from a 17th century tavern, a teapot from Seneca Village, the 19th century black settlement displaced by Central Park, raspberry seeds sown in backyard Brooklyn gardens, These everyday objects are windows into the city's forgotten history. This goes on to talk a little bit more about the history and what the book actually covers. Check out the first link in the show notes as we're looking at this, and you can see the table of contents of the book and get your own copy. Now, here's a little bit about the authors. Two of the authors we have on the show today are... Nan A. Rothschild. She is an urban social archaeologist who was Ann Whitney Olin Professor of Anthropology at Barnard College and is adjunct professor at Columbia University. We also have H. Arthur Bankoff. He is the advisor to the Chair for Archaeology at the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission and is a professor emeritus in the Department of Anthropology at Brooklyn College, City University of New York. Two of the authors that weren't able to come on the show today are Amanda Sutphin. She is the Director of Archaeology at the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission and manages the NYC Archaeological Repository, the Nan A. Rothschild Research Center. And that is the collection that is the impetus for this volume. Also, Jessica Stribel McLean is an urban archaeologist at the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission and the NYC Archaeological Repository. So let me hand it off to myself to start the show with Nan and Arthur. Welcome to the show, everybody. Rachel, how's it going? Good. We are here in Monument Valley in kind of on the border of Utah and Arizona this week. So new location. Yeah, absolutely. Surrounded by national parks on the way here from Zion, which we spent a week out, well, five days out at the end of last week. And it was Mm -hmm. just... uh, crazy coming through here. We're definitely going to spend some more time here probably next early next spring and and hit a bunch more of these national parks. But as we usually talk a little bit about ourselves, we're not going to spend too much time doing that this time because we have a few guests waiting online. And 
they have written the book that we mentioned in the beginning of the show. So let's go ahead and bring on our guests right now. They are Nan Rothschild and Arthur Bankoff. Ann and Arthur, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So does one of you want to give us just a quick synopsis of what the book is about? We're going to talk quite a bit about this, but what is the, the dust jacket synopsis of what this book actually covers? First of all, the book came about because we were able to establish this archaeological repository in New York City uh, mm-hmm. up until eight years ago. There was no place for archaeologists who worked in the city to preserve their artifacts. And so we got some funding and a space, and then we started accumulating collections. I mean, it's managed by the Landmarks Preservation Commission and Amanda Sutphin and Jessica Stribel, who are the co-editors, co-authors of this book. So we have 35 collections, more than a million artifacts. Um, And this represents archaeological work done in the city over about a 40-year period for lots of archaeologists, mostly done as part of environmental compliance Mm -hmm. legislation, but not all of it. And in the beginning, we excavated, and I was the co-director of a couple of those, we excavated a couple of very large sites that were up to a block in extent. Now, I think, Arthur, you actually worked before that with your field schools in places like Van Cortlandt and Brooklyn. Um, Yes. So those kinds of sites made a big big splash. Mm -hmm. But go on, Arthur. Okay, I said we started with our field schools in in 1975. (laughs) And we only did very small things because we were, in fact, a field school with uh, limited support. Uh, support from Brooklyn College uh, was mm-hmm. okay, but we didn't have enough to do very big projects. So the book, to get back to your original question, the book is a history of New York City as shown not only through the document documents, but as shown through the artifacts which have been excavated from various places in the city. And so we use the history in a sense, but we add to it what we can from what we know of the artifacts, who who made them, uh, when they were made, what they were used for, and so on. And it happens to be a very pretty book. Mm -hmm. It's very well illustrated. And we're all archaeologists, so... We're used to working with things <laughs> and, 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 and figuring out what mm-hmm. the things, how, what the purpose of the things is and what the importance of the things is. And, and we think that, that archaeology is able to elucidate aspects of the past that documents just don't touch on. I mean, the lives of right. black people, the lives of poor people, women, and so on, are not really covered in the documents. And of course, Archaeology also provides a great deal of information about environment, health, diet, you know, how how people were mm-hmm. living, the nitty-gritty. But one of the other things that's been exciting, I think, for me, is how finding a certain artifact has led one or of an or another of us to do research into something that we didn't really know about. I mean, finding a sugar mold in an 18th century context really led us to talk about how New York dominated the sugar processing 
of the United States from the 18th to the early 20th century. Right. So, I mean, it, it's all these different aspects that archaeology touches on. So speaking of archaeology, you, you mentioned, I mean, this is a history of New York City, and that's the, the title of the book, you know, uh, the subtitle anyway. But just doing a little bit of, you know, diving in on the book, it, this goes well past the founding of New York City because you found, you know, archaeology, you know, artifacts and things like that. Well, not you guys necessarily, but the collection contains artifacts from well before the founding of New York City. How far back does that collection go? We've got artifacts in, in the collection from excavated contexts going back some, hmm, let's say, eight to 10,000 years. And of course, nice. we, this is not, there wasn't any New York City at the time, but we chose as our, um, <laughs> uh, our, our locale, the part of the world where New York City was going to be. Now, also, the, the other thing that we should mm -hmm. say is that many of the artifacts, not the earliest ones, but many of the uh, colonial artifacts and later that we've got come from Manhattan rather than the other parts of New York City. Mm -hmm. uh, this is partially because Manhattan was the most densely populated part of the city and therefore had the most artifacts probably deposited, but also because <laughs> Manhattan was New York City for until 1898 when other boroughs, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, mm -hmm. and the Bronx were added to the city. But it's, it's also because uh, Manhattan is where the development that took place in the 80s, which involved these large block excavations, occurred. Um, but, it, you know, so Manhattan may represent the most numerous part of the collection, but Staten Island, for example, is where most of the indigenous material is from, and the Bronx as well. And we have sites from every borough. But right. mm -hmm. just simply because of the foibles of developers, that's <laughs> where most of the artifacts come from. Right. Yeah. As CRM archaeologists like Rachel and I are, I've had discussions like that on the CRM Archaeology podcast, which is one of the ones I've hosted for over 10 years now. You know, we, we often talk about the archaeological record and the things that we know, but it's purely based on where we want to build things, right? <laughs> like sometimes we don't get to do right. excavations in places where there might be there might be some good sites. It's where builders want to do stuff. And that mm -hmm. is a serious bias in the record. And it's very frustrating. I mean, I've done CRM archaeology and you have a, a sewer line and there's something really tantalizing, <laughs> you know, 10 feet outside the sewer line, but you can't go look <laughs> right. at it. No, no, right. definitely not. Or two feet below the sewer line, where you know you you know where you're only contracted <laughs> to dig as far as to, you can clear the sewer line, uh, and you say, well, you know, there's, mm -hmm. there is a lot of stuff underneath here, but that's how it goes with CRM. Mm -hmm. Right, right. I, I would imagine every project in New York City these days, because it's so incredibly developed is a CRM project. There's no, there's no possibility of a project. I would imagine that's more academic in nature, I would assume, right? Uh, it would all have to be related to some sort of development. Well, there have been some small projects. Uh, a, a colleague mm -hmm. of mine, Diana Wall, has done some excavations in backyards in Greenwich Village mm. where there are traces of a cistern or a privy, and those are unrelated, or I think the Merchant's House 
in lower Manhattan. Mm-hmm. There, there was no mm-hmm. development associated with that. And, and mm-hmm. field schools, you know, would yeah, look for sure. that kind of opportunity as we, Arthur has. We would, we were doing field schools okay. actually shied away from CRM work, possibly because we were uh, academically biased and possibly also, as I said, because we didn't have mm-hmm. very much money. And we, our field school, specifically sought out places which were open to us to excavate, but not necessarily part of CRM projects. But Parks Department in, in, okay. in New York has been very good that way. And we have a, a number of projects which were interesting at research projects, which we did because it seemed that this would be an interesting research project, as simple as that. Okay. Just talking about the book here that you guys put together, what was the impetus behind writing this book? Was it the the establishment of the collection and just wanting to kind of get everything out there in one concise volume? Because I have to imagine there's been a lot written about New York City, right? Uh, I don't know from an archaeological perspective, but there's been a lot probably written about archaeology, uh, about New York City and discussed about it. I mean, it's one of the most well-known cities on the planet, of course. So... What prompted the the writing of this that you guys wanted, the story that you guys wanted to tell here? Well, it's actually sort of funny because an editor from Columbia University Press contacted mm-hmm. me when she saw the announcement about the repository. And she said, is there a book here? And I <laughs> nice. thought, well, I don't know. There hasn't actually been much written about New York City archaeology. There have been some papers oh. given at meetings and uh, but there uh, there's one wonderful book by Anne-Marie Cantwell and Diana Wall called Unearthing Gotham, which is also a chronological analysis of the city through archaeology, but somehow quite different. I think our book is really focused on objects and material culture and and mm-hmm. using that as the way to get into the story. Okay. The opening of the repository was an impetus in some sense, because here we had all these all these artifacts from different, mostly CRM excavations, and we had no way to showcase them in that in a sense. We mm-hmm. knew they were important. We know that they could be used, and we just said, well, there aren't any books which actually use these things, but there <laughs> are similar, whether well, not exactly similar, but there are analogous books for Boston uh, after the big dig. and. I think Alexandria has a has a nice one too. As Philadelphia, I Philadelphia, right? Phila- Philadelphia, right. Philadelphia, Philadelphia mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we said, "Hey, this right. ought to be a good." We answered Nan's question to, by saying, "Yes, it ought to be a good book," uh, and it was, but it took a long time. <laughs> <laughs> right. Nice, nice. All right. Well, with that, that sounds like a good stopping point. So let's take a break and come back and keep talking about this book with Nan Rothschild and Arthur Bankoff. Back in a minute. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 192. And we are interviewing... Nan Rothschild and Arthur Bankoff, two authors of the new book released as we're releasing this podcast. If you're listening years in the future, go find it. It's out there. It's called Buried Beneath the City, an Archaeological History of New York. So, Rachel, I think you had a question to kick us off the segment, too. Yeah. So I'm really interested in what kind of artifacts you're finding and what kind of conclusions you can draw from those artifacts, because I know that in in the like written history of a place like New York City, you're kind of going to be skewed towards maybe the like white male upper class population to some extent. And I'm wondering if you're getting the viewpoint of other people, like maybe the working class members of society, the women, people that aren't white, black people and any other minorities that might have been living in New York at various times throughout history. So I'm just kind of curious. I know that's like a really broad question, but if maybe you have some specific examples or thoughts on that. Yes. New York is very heavily documented, as you would imagine. And there is, in fact, not very much on minorities, not very much on women's work, not very much on children. And not very much on sick people, to give some examples of uh, mm-hmm. minority. Mm-hmm. And what we have, what we found while working on the book, is that, for instance, there's uh, one can trace various changes in household composition and in what, for instance, in cooking, right? There was a change over from one type mm-hmm. of cooking mm-hmm. to another type of cooking, which is not mentioned anywhere really. And we found that mm-hmm. in, just in terms of looking at the pots and looking at the the debris, the coal, uh, the, the, what's left of coal cooking or what's left of wood cooking and so on. And yes, we do deal quite a bit with black history in New York City. Uh, and Nan can tell you about Seneca mm-hmm. Village, which she was the principal investigator for. Uh, I also would like to mention the African burial ground, which was excavated in 1992. And the Mm -hmm. African burial ground exposed, well, there were 400 sets of human remains excavated from the burial ground. Mm -hmm. And they told us all sorts of things. I mean, they told us about the origins through DNA analysis of people, of adults from Africa They told us about the stresses of work, which manifest themselves on the body, because when you do repeated movements, your Mm -hmm. muscles develop attachments to the bone that you can interpret. We also have, you know, dental records. And then there's the, the really tragic history of the number of babies and infants who don't survive infancy. Mm. So that Mm -hmm. was a very eye-opening experience. And I think uh, it really shook people up because a lot of people 
don't think of New York City as being associated with enslavement or with a large black population. But in fact, there was quite a large black population. Seneca Village, Mm -hmm. which we excavated about 10 years ago, was a very unusual settlement. It was located about three miles north of the settled area of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. It was populated by free blacks, who many of whom bought their own houses or bought land and built houses. And we think it must have been a very pleasant place to live because (laughs) you were not confronting the racism of the, you know, crowded city. You were also in the country. People had land. They fished in the Hudson. Um, They also were laborers and and, uh, went to sea. The women were often domestics, which we know from the documentary record. But Mm -hmm. in about 1840, it became an integrated community as Irish and Germans started moving in. Now, uh, it was a community. At at its peak, there were fewer than 300 people, but they had three churches. One of the churches had a school in the basement, and there were not many. It was called Colored School Number 3. There were not very many black schools in in New York. And the people who lived there, we think, really were a moral community. They were focused on the church. They were very interested in education. And we also think of them as middle class because many of them had the same kinds of dishes. And this is where the archaeology comes in. Mm -hmm. They had the same kinds of dishes as white middle class people. Mm. And so for for us, that's really a, a marker of the kind of worldview if you believe that buying ceramics reflects a worldview, and we think it probably does. So that was a shared worldview with with other middle-class people. That's very interesting because I wouldn't have expected to see that in a primarily Black community, that it was basically the same as a, as a white community. I really love hearing about that parallel. That's neat. In addition, you mentioned that you, you guys were able to find out about sick people through the archaeological record. And mm-hmm. I found that really interesting because I do know that that is an underrepresented class of people in history and definitely in the archaeological record. So what kind of stuff did you guys find in your excavations that you were able to draw conclusions from? A lot of medicine bottles, uh, right. all sorts of patent <laughs> medicines. Uh-huh, sure. <laughs> in the excavation uh-huh. of City Hall Park, over in the northwest corner of City Hall Park was a dispensary, a public dispensary, which had mm. its its own its own share of bottles. An interesting there, thing there is that the bottles seem to be, well, may appear to be gendered in some respects, be in that oh, hair dye was something that men did mostly. And mm. cough medicine and nostrums of all sorts, was something that women used more than men. One of the reasons for this was that it was probably unladylike to uh, drink alcohol. We also find a lot of alcohol bottles. but And the mm-hmm. patent medicines contained not only alcohol, but all sorts of other ingredients which would relax people. Mm. Moreover, heroin, morphine, yeah, heroin, opium. <laughs> when when they had heroin, they had, certainly they had opium. I'm trying to think of of other examples in Five Points, possibly. Nan, do you mm-hmm. you got some 
examples there? Well, the other, the Irish believed strongly in the value of um, spring water, of bottled spring water. That's Mm -hmm. a, a tradition that comes from Ireland, and they maintained it in New York. And so in Irish uh, deposits at the Five Point site, which you probably know about, it was a notorious slum that Charles Dickens wrote about in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in spite of being called a slum, people in it lived as well as they could, and they, you know, had ornaments in their houses, and they, you know, cooked reasonable meals. Um, meat was readily available in New York City for all people. It was amazing; people could eat meat two or three times a day if they wanted to. And that was very different from Europe. So we find in the faunal material, we find we find material like that. But we also have the records from a Spring Street church where there were, I forget how many bodies recovered, but they were not complete. But we have hmm. the dental records. And so we can see that, for example, men very often had cavities. Mm. And not okay. as many women had cavities. There were a couple of people who had false teeth or, you know, appliances like bridges and so on. So dental care, this was in the 19th century, was beginning mm-hmm. to be considered part of the, the care of the body. And we see this interest in the care of the body developing over time with things like toothbrushes and mm-hmm. combs and stuff. They, they weren't present in the 17th century, but they're present in right. the 18th and 19th century. So hmm. uh, all of that is part of health. You know, I'm curious because you both brought up five points. And aside from Dickens, I'm sure most people's primary reference material in the five points is the movie Gangs of New York <laughs> because we're <laughs> Americans and we associate everything with, with movies, right? So, you know, I right. mean, how much... I, I I don't know if you guys either saw, saw that movie. It came out, what, like 20 years ago at this point, give or take. But uh, I'm just wondering, you know, representationally, how right something like that was. You know what I mean? You see these historical representations in New York and prior to this collection in your book and, and really discussing the, the object and material culture of these areas, you know, our, our impressions of early New York are from these from these resources and <laughs> these fictional resources. And I'm just wondering how close are they? <laughs> Arthur, do you want to answer? No, I did not see the movie. Did you see the movie? Nope. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I, I saw, I saw the movie. <laughs> I can't say I remember it. Terribly. I, I can't say I can't either. <laughs> I know it's been a long time. <laughs> but it, it was really distorted. It, I I'm mean, sure. You know, it, it depicted the gangs in particular. Mm-hmm. The Irish were, you know, stereotyped. And and Five Points had it had Italians, it had Jews, it had Germans, it had lots, lots and lots of Irish, but all kinds of people. It had blacks as well. And in fact, one of the interesting things that compares Five Points to Seneca Village and places like that is that Seneca Village appears to have been a place where there was no disharmony, as far Hmm. as we can tell, between racial groups. Hmm. Whereas in Lower Manhattan, where the Irish and the free Blacks were competing for the lowest ranked jobs, there was much less of a sense of collegiality or or people respecting each other. And I think the film doesn't present that at all. 
Hmm. Yeah, and that's definitely a common thread with uh, with fictional resources, which is one thing we talk about on this show actually quite a bit. You know, we've had shows on uh, episodes on Vikings, for example, and you know, there's there's never been a Viking represented in the archaeological record wearing a helmet with horns on it. That was a <laughs> Hollywood invention. <laughs> you know what I mean? So right, yeah. it, a lot of what people think of history does come from these these things that we see in in television, film, and, and books. So that's unfortunate. Hopefully books like this can help start to change that opinion just a little bit or, and, and mm-hmm. what people think. But all right, with that, let's go ahead and take our final break and then we'll come back and wrap up this discussion about the buried archaeological history of New York City. Back in a minute. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to episode 192 of the Archaeology Show. And we are... Interviewing Nan Rothschild and Arthur Bankoff, two of the four authors of the book Buried Beneath the City, an Archaeological History of New York City. And do be sure to check out the show notes. We have some great links in there to the archaeological repository that, you know, was kind of the impetus behind this book. And then also the Landmarks Preservation Commission. There's a lot of good reports and things over there. And and both websites have a lot of other links that can take you some places to learn a lot more about the history and archaeological history of New York City. So moving on here in segment three, I'm just wondering when you guys set out to do this again, it took several years for you guys to put this book together and the archaeological collection at the repository is enormous. Did you intend to sort of summarize that information into a historical synthesis uh, of that collection as a historical you know, guide to New York City, so to speak? Or did you go in with specific questions that you were trying to potentially answer you know, our hypotheses that that have been maybe longstanding questions about New York City's history that nobody knew about, but that looking into the collection, looking into the work you guys have both done that you tried to answer. So so to paraphrase that, were there specific questions you were trying to answer with the research and the writing of this book? For me, it seemed logical to use a chronological framework to think about the history of this space that we call New York from from the very earliest uh, pre-Columbian settlers, and to think about what Dutch New York was like, what British New York was like, how America got started, how New York really became almost a separate place within America. I, I think it sort of it structured itself in that way. However, within hmm. each chapter, there were obviously questions that were different from one another. And so what you wanted to know about the indigenous period 
was how people made their living, what kinds of tools they used, where they lived, how they used the environment. To some degree, of course, uh, at the end of the indigenous period, you have the period of contact with Europeans, and then things change a lot, and you start focusing more on trade and the exploitation of Native Americans by Europeans. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, it was an exploitation, but I think it was also a series of misunderstandings because when Europeans thought they were buying a piece of land, indigenous people thought they were selling the use of the land. They thought they would be sharing the land. They didn't think they were selling ownership. And that's just one of the easily understood misunderstandings. So when you Mm -hmm. get to the Dutch period and you realize how little the Dutch were really interested in settling. They just didn't want, they they didn't want to be a a settler colony. They wanted to come and exploit the resources, furs, but they weren't so Mm -hmm. interested in establishing a community. The Dutch life in the, you know, Dutch Republic was pretty good and people didn't Mm -hmm. really have an impetus to immigrate. And of course, that's not true in later periods. Um, So I think each period lends itself to different kinds of questions. Um, Mm. But the chronology seemed, at least to us, to see the obvious, to be the obvious way to go about uh, looking at it. Okay. Arthur? I agree totally with what Nan said, actually. She said it very well. The chronological framework was such that we didn't have really any particular hypotheses or in, in, in our brains, or either explicitly or implicitly, while we were uh, writing. And the other thing being that there's a, we, we were able to show just very small, obviously, very, a very small percentage of what's in the repository. Uh, there were whole sites which we left out, and there are whole areas which uh, probably could use some more coverage. But the fact that we had it arranged chronologically and we split the chronology in by more or less by the development of what uh, of the city right from the dutch to the england from the indigenous mm-hmm. population to the dutch to mm-hmm. the english then to the americans and we stop at 1898 we don't go into the city becoming a I saw that. A, a huge uh, conglomerate but it, it, what's amazing, and what was what was amazing to me, was the diversity of the city all through its history. Essentially, we from the very beginning mm-hmm. of European colonization, you had people there from many, many different parts of Europe speaking many, many different languages, and in certain cases, uh, for instance, we've got a Turkish pipe or pipe in the Turkish style from. Manhattan. Well, we <laughs> don't know how we we can guess yeah. how it got there, and we can guess how it got there from its from its context. <laughs> but it's still mm-hmm. it's, there. There are many puzzles in 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 the in the city archaeology as well as blanks in city history. So I think that you know it was it wasn't that we had any, uh, or at least me. It wasn't that I had any discrete hypotheses that I was trying to test along the way. It was more or less a a voyage of discovery. And 
using the artifacts and saying, what can we tell okay. about the people who use these? So, mm. Arthur, you mentioned 1898 as the end year, and I did notice that in the uh, in the contents here. What prompted 1898? What's special about that year that you guys decided to stop this um, this volume at that point? Well, it was the that was the year the city was incorporated. <laughs> right, it, it incorporated oh. Brooklyn. Mm. Yeah. So that, that was when All it stopped being just Manhattan came together. Okay. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Well, I mean, the obvious question off of that then is, is volume two going to cover 1898 to present? <laughs> <laughs> I suggested that, well, but I don't think anybody's got stomach for it. <laughs> right now. Also, I don't think there are many sites that have been excavated that cover, you know, the 20th century. I mean, the Landmarks right. Commission, which often mandates that archaeology be done, be done, has not been interested in the 20th century. <laughs> um, and so I think that mm -hmm. the likelihood of, I mean, there are certainly interesting questions, but, you know, you could also argue that there's a lot more written material and a more diverse body of written material sure. that might cover some of those questions and you don't. I mean, archaeology is always revelatory, but maybe not right. as uh, cr crucial uh, in the 20th century. I'd imagine in a city like New York, too, where, you know, when it becomes a, a much bigger city, when the when the boroughs are incorporated there, and I'd forgotten that. You mentioned that earlier in the podcast, Arthur. I'd forgotten that date. But I imagine that as trash collection and things like that, I mean, archaeologists, mm. we dig in the trash and that's how we find out about history. Right. So as trash collection becomes more prominent, you're left with those other resources, right? True. <laughs> and unfortunately, uh, the 20th century material, uh, which may overlie earlier material uh, or be mixed with it, is very often considered by the archaeologists as just trash, as not not something mm -hmm. which, right? We're not. We're, we're, we uh, tend to be like anybody else and say, "Oh, the earlier stuff is more interesting because we know less about it." Uh, although there have been excavations, yeah, there's at least mm -hmm. one excavation that I, I can think of that did a lot of uh, work in terms of landfill, which was in fact trash. And 20th and 19th and 20th mm -hmm. century landfill uh, divided, doing good microstratigraphy and so on. But basically, I think that by the 20th century, we become over over documented. That's a possibility. That is, we've got not only sure. the material, but we've got photographs, we've got tape recordings, we've got documents which are in good shape and have survived well, rather than documents which have not survived all that well and have lacunae mm -hmm. in them. Yeah, they're, they're, I don't see a uh, necessary yep. need or even a necessary uh, demand for twentieth taking this into the 20th century. What I would like to do, what would be good, would be to look at other, mm -hmm. if we could, other parts of the city separately from Manhattan. Although we do, as as, as Nan said, okay. we do have things from other parts of the city, but we don't do the same kind of fine-grained history that we would do for Manhattan yet. I will say that there is a field that's, I guess, 
partly related to historical archaeology that's called archaeology of the contemporary past. Um, some of my students have worked in it and are, would argue that the material record of any period is, you know, provides a different kind of insight, <laughs> but it's not quite as uh, interesting to me anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, okay. There is enough landfill in New York to have its own subdivision or sub, <laughs> sub, subdiscipline of landfill archaeology because the city was always growing <laughs> not only in a population but in uh, dimensions, right? There, there was a lot of filling on mm-hmm. the edges of Manhattan and then later mm-hmm. filling in the other boroughs as well with different techniques. And um, landfill... Uh, material is actually quite interesting. Certainly the earliest stuff is quite interesting because they use garbage and they also use sunken boats. But the garbage, what they considered garbage... Ships, right. (laughs) Ships, sorry. Uh, What they considered garbage is archaeologically very important about telling us something about how they lived. So this is an important part of archaeology in New York City. Okay. I actually did a small a small garbage project with students <laughs> because the Department of Sanitation wanted to know in about 1984 if the bottle recycling law was working. And so some students and I gathered samples from maybe eight or nine different blocks that were socioeconomically and, and racially diverse, and we sorted it in a facility that the Department of Sanitation provided. And what was interesting, a couple of things that were interesting. I was interested in the project because I'm interested in faunal material, and I was wondering how much of today's garbage would leave faunal remains. And what turned out to be the case was that the the Park Avenue block had no faunal remains on it, presumably because Mm. people ate filet and ate out, whereas Chinatown and Harlem had lots of wings and uh, ribs and so on. But the other interesting element for me was that garbage really does mirror, even in, in such a small sample, does mirror what's going on. The problem with the project was that after it was complete and we found that middle-class families were the ones that had the most bottles in their garbage. Mm-hmm. No, sorry, mm-hmm. the fewest. Uh, the the elite and and the poor had the most, and the middle class people were recycling more. But nobody had done a prior study, mm. so there was no way to know whether this reflected consumption or recycling behavior. Uh, <laughs> hmm. so. Okay, interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we're coming near the end of the show here, so I'm just wondering from your guys's perspective. We'll see what each of your opinion is on this, but I'm wondering what one of your most surprising findings was from this research. We've talked about it a little bit. We've talked we've talked about a few things, but we'll start with you, Nan. What was one of your most surprising or, you know, things you didn't expect from the research and writing of this book? Well, uh, I think I already mentioned the importance of sugar processing, but I think yes. what was what I focused on in some way were the developments in New York as an industrial center. I mean, we have in the 
18th century, we have a Huguenot silversmith whose work is represented in the Metropolitan Museum today. However, you don't find his work in the archaeological record. What you find in the archaeological record are the crucibles in which he melted his silver. And so the crucibles Mm -hmm. then lead you to look for anything he might have made. But of course, anything is fine as that that would end up in the Met would have been passed down as heirlooms or sold or something. We also, we see the development of the stoneware industry uh, with German immigrants who had Mm -hmm. brought this tradition with them, and it became very important in New York. And and not only was it used by Germans, but there was a a free black potter who made stoneware. So I, I think those kinds of things, which were, to me, kind of, hidden and not really obvious as something that would emerge were the surprises. Okay. What about you, Arthur? What was surprising to me was the the change in water quality in New York. The fact that during while mm-hmm. while Manhattan started off with some very nice streams and you could and that had wells and so on, by the eighteenth century mm-hmm. People were not drinking the water, if they could help it at all. They were drinking drinking alcoholic beverages, and uh, you wonder, I wonder <laughs> in any event, how often our founding fathers were dead sober. But in any event, uh, there was <laughs> there was there was a a a, a, a knowledge by the or a, a, an understanding by people in the city that you really couldn't use the wells, that the wells were not, uh, they weren't safe. They weren't good. And the fact is that uh, we had, the city had uh, various uh, cholera epidemics, uh, typhoid, and so on, which were traced and understood to be traced to the water. And it wasn't until, until the Croton Reservoir system went up that Mm. people had water that they could actually drink. All right. This is Chris just jumping in here with Rachel because the recording suddenly ended (laughs) as Arthur (laughs) about surprising revelations about water and water quality in New York City, which is something I never would have thought would come out in the archaeological record. That's totally crazy. Uh, And I would find that surprising. Yeah. So, so with that, I think we will go ahead and wrap up this podcast. And again, check out the links in the show notes. There's a lot of good stuff over there if you want to learn more and also to see a link to this book. And not only can you buy the book, but they also have the ebook uh, for sale right on that website as well. If you're travelers like us and don't have physical books anymore because <laughs> <laughs> they take up too much space. Yeah. And I was like poking around on the archaeological repository website a little bit. And even if you you know don't have time to read the whole book or whatever, just go check out the photos because it gives you a really cool like yeah. just window into the kind of stuff that they were finding and then what they could tell about the people that owned the things that they were finding. I really liked the collection of children's items and stuff like that. So there's mm-hmm. there's some cool stuff there that you can see pictures of and really good, really high quality pictures too. 
Yes, maybe if the other two co-authors, Amanda Sutphin and Jessica Stribal McLean, are listening to this, we can get them on later on to maybe discuss more about the collection and 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 some other aspects of the book because there was so yeah, much we weren't able totally. to cover. So. I know there's so much. I mean, New York is such a big city. There's so much to say about it and so much history. Yeah. We didn't even really touch on the prehistoric stuff. We got we kind of like sure. focused on the on the historic stuff because they there's just so much you know, and your conversation sort of meanders and you talk mm-hmm. about the things that you talk about, but but yeah. There's so, so much there. Indeed. All right. Well, with that, we will see you guys next week with some more great archaeology show content. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 